that's um very different than if you'll notice the, the normal theme song. I added a section there. Um, now that's um the Funky Friday uh, theme. This is the Funky Friday on the 28th of October. And this is the first part of a music series I'm going to do. Um, I should add a, a rather, at least I think it is, rather unconventional music series, as you'll see soon. But anyhow, this uh, slow passage is, is from my um, second hard listening album, Volume 2. It's the B section of a piece called Pop Cadence. And so... Um, you know, it le leads me, it leads me to, to, to travel, do some time travel and go back in time because that music, uh, is something I did. Let's say I did that in 2015 and this is what this, uh, coffee stain here in this little sheet music is, um, a quintet that I've written and, uh, it's sort of a, a big, a big piece. Um, it has, you know, I'm looking for an ensemble to do it. It doesn't matter. It could be college or university level or anybody. I really would love, if you have a string quartet, know a string quartet, are in a string quartet. And don't mind me, because there's a piano part, me going in there and doing stuff. Mind my little intrusions there, uh, musical intrusions, uh, sensitive intrusions, but still. Um, I think, you know, I, uh, well, I'll get back to this in a bit. I don't want to get too far ahead of anything, but um, so I'm going to do uh, today, um, you know, I've been watching a lot of, um, a lot of music videos, um, you know, how-to instructional videos and things like that, and I've been watching them over the years, you know, I've been watching them, I think, since they've been in existence, online platform, and I'm thinking, well, I want to do my own kind of thing, which is very different, will be very different, um, as I said, idiosyncratic because I'm going to talk about my personal life and talk a little bit about uh, how I came to do what you just heard me do on piano. Like, where does it come from? Why? Why this musical language and not some other musical language? So um, we have to go back actually to my infancy because I um, was born an only child into a family of two parents and the, uh, my two parents started a, um, a, a, to this day, um, completely unprecedented, sui generis, unique cosmetic manufacturing company that was organic and all the rest of it. And they were starting, so the year I was born was 67, the year of Sgt. Pepper, other, many other big things happened in 67. And, you know, as a toddler, and then I think age one, two, three, um, I did not have access to things really outside of the family business, by which I mean I was fairly isolated, geographically isolated, um, was certainly isolated from people. I didn't have any neighbors. Um, you know, had I grow, grown up in, say, D Detroit or Chicago, there would have been a musical community in the 60s and 70s. Maybe somebody would have a band or something like that. If, if it was there, either in... Tampa, Florida, which is where I was, or in Manhattan, which is where I spent my summers in the 70s, actually. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, I was just totally isolated, but all I had um, were LPs, albums, records. And the thing about it is, is that I really think my musical education, serious, serious education, 
began with those albums. And it's and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about that now because, you know, um, for those of you for those of you young people, there used to be these big things that carried music called records. And I should say that um, I should say a lot of things about it. So I've saved a few of them from those early '70s years. Not a lot of them, but I'm gonna talk about. Um, the uniqueness of my experience is sometimes in life, every one of us, you, me, everybody here um, has unique things about them and has um, actually things that they can contribute, accomplishments, things they're skilled at, um, but we all of us have limitations and sometimes they're quite powerful or things that uh, just don't, uh, we don't experience certain things um, that other people experience. And so... Um, I am not a prodigy, prodigy. I'm a musician, but you know, so many musicians are prodigies and it's sort of story after story after story, all the grades, all the known names. You look at their biographies, they start piano at age four or five um, and they're prodigies of, of one kind or another. And um, I was not actually, I had many weaknesses. Music was one of the hardest things. It's the thing I love the most, more than anything in the world, practically. It's up there. But I was not a fast learner. I was a slow learner. And I had very, very... So one, one liability I had was ears. My ears weren't as strong as other people. And I learned this... Why uh, is a story about how I learned about this. So I had all these records. And, you know, no musical instruments, no bands, no, no, no choir, choruses, any of that... Um, but I'm listening, you know, and the, and the albums I'm listening to are sort of like, um, um, they were mostly jazz, but there were also some radio plays and some symphonies and things like that. And so these are a few, a few of those records. Now, um, this is classical music. This is uh, Beethoven. Toscanini, and this is a this is one of my dad's records from the late '40s. I think this is '49 NBC Radio Orchestra, and so I, I have this out here because it's very different than some of the other stuff I'm going to talk about. Also, because it's like one of the older LPs here. And you know, the thing about it is, is um, you know, Toscanini's Beethoven's Ninth. I would listen to it, and so because I, my brain was developing, well, everything was developing, certainly my heart, as they say, my heart, my soul, my spirit, body developing. I, since I didn't have any access to any musical instruments, my substitution was listening to these records and I would listen to them um, almost as if I was trying to figure out what was going on to the best of my ability. And I would crawl and I would like, I would study the grooves in the records, like the LPs, and I could tell by the groove formations, like the, um, you know, um, without reading, um, although I could already read. I read, read earlier than other people. That was a strength, was reading. Um, I could like look at the grooves and, and say, you know, this, that groove is, um, a real popular, and so real popular was Sergeant Pepper came out that year, and I listened to Sergeant Pepper religiously. I listened to Guys and Dolls religiously, the original. So when I say Guys and Dolls, I mean the original production with Robert Alda. 
um, Alan Alda's father, I think, was in that, and Stubby K, and you know the people, v Vivian Blaine. And because uh, we're talking, we're talking here early, um, late sixties, early seventies, sixty-nine, seventy, seventy-one. And I would lay on my back, and I would just receive this music. And you know, um, some of the music really spoke to me more than other music. And you know, um, when I started becoming a boy, uh, you know, walking and things like that. Still no musical instrument, still no real access to actual musicians. Occasionally, you know, great musicians would come to town and I would go with my family to see them. I saw some really incredible concerts. Um, what comes to mind? Well, um, I saw a Jackson 5 concert in 1972 at Madison Square Garden, and that was very, um, very powerful experience. And I saw some, some classical things, but it was really these, uh, what's called jazz musicians. It's really their recordings that I really responded to. And so what I'm doing is I'm not able to play anything. And I'm putting on these albums and listening to these albums of largely instrumental music. And I, you know, I, I thought I'd queue up some things here because I just wanted to kind of give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Now, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you're going to listen the way you're going to listen. And I'm sure every six, seven, eight year old is different in how they listen to music. If in fact they do listen to music. Um, so, you know, um, got a little, I made a little playlist for today, believe it or not. And you know, I would get like money for Christmas and like that kind of thing, a very small amount. And I would go to Peaches Records and Tapes. These are some of the stores, Peaches, Record Hunter in New York, Sam Goodies, you know, you go in and I would pick out something that interested me. It was always something I read about because as a boy, I started subscribing to two magazines, Downbeat Magazine, three magazines actually, Downbeat, Contemporary Keyboard, and this is all before I ever played an instrument. So I was already subscribing to a keyboard magazine, fantasizing about one day while I touch a piano. That's a, and so I'm listening to this, this, and I also subscribed to American Film, which is the American Film Institute. I actually brought, um, this is one of my early copies. It's me, my, my, um, of American Film Magazine. So I would read, open up this world, this is 1980, and read about something called independent cinema, this new thing. And read about different, you know, you would have an interview with, um, oh goodness, Mark Rappaport is in here. Um, uh, there's a discussion of, uh, you know, the budgeting of making an independent, yeah, they made movies their way, this kind of stuff, you know. Hester Street, Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street. Um, And you know, I would I would read these now. Now you have to understand, I'm reading American Film Magazine, but in many cases, I was not able to see some of these movies. I saw a lot of movies as a little kid, but you know, like I never really got to see some of the things they were talking about because some of the things they were talking about were so obscure and with so low low budget and had such poor distribution that I would only read about it and I would fantasize about what would that movie look like. I'm reading this review. This music is a little bit more direct than the movie because I'm actually hearing the music, although it's a recording. 
And so um, I heard this. Um, I, I became fascinated by these two people, Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, and they made this album of just two pianos. Now, here's the first, I think the very first jazz I heard, I'm going to play it now. It happened to be Miles Davis, but it was not Kind of Blue. It was not Birth of the Cool. It was not Decoy or Man with the Gold with the Horn or um, Sketches of Spain. It was his score for Louis Mao. It was this. And see, there's Jean Moreau. my dad had this little Fontana record. It was about this size. And um, and I sort of figured out how to play this record. I would put it on the turntable. And this is, the, I think, one of the very, so that's kind of a, a roundabout, circuitous way of hearing about Miles Davis. It's not, it's not constructed or scheduled by um, a canonical interpretation of Miles Davis, by which I mean, you know, it's not, and then a lot of things we'll get to, because you, because when you're a, a child and you're going to the record store, in that case, it's whatever the records are around. And it might be something that's very, um, that the record store decided to um, have in stock inventory, right? And in the case of this album, my dad was listening to this, and I guess as a man in the 50s, right? He had this. And it just happened to be in the house. Same with the Beethoven, the, ninth, the uh, Toscanini Ninth Symphony. And so you're kind of in a little bit at the mercy of your of the environment. Actually, you're at the mercy of what's available. You're at the mercy of the fact there are no musical instruments around you, and you fantasize about what would it be like to play a musical instrument. And you lay, I lay in my back and listen to this music. Like, what would it be like to play that? Um, so I started piano lessons rather late. I started at age nine and 10, not four or five. And, um, you know, we'll get to that in a second, but um, a little bit, a few years later, I heard, um, I talked about uh, the Herbie Hancock and Chikoria, and I sort of heard this. It's, um, I hope the sound is...
I can't play all of that. I mean, I can't play. I'm playing, I'm playing little snippets um, to try to give you a sense of what I was experiencing. Now, this was a long concert that they did, a recording Columbia Records. Now, in their career at this time, I had heard them live a little bit after this, both of them playing electronic music. I'd never heard them play only acoustic piano like this, like in a concert hall, until this record. And this was simply extraordinary. I didn't even know. And the other thing, too, is that when I got this album, I listened to it over and over and over again. It was the year I started piano lessons. And so I had a very strict, old school, old world Italian piano teacher named Violeta Mendezi. Mendezi. And I would ride my bicycle over to her house in the late 70s, you know and study these very simple exercises and these little, little pieces. And so this is after I got my upright. Um, I got, now this piano, here's the second piano I ever owned. And I got this one in 1979. And I was reunited with it, as I've said before, uh, three years ago, after being away from it for a lot of my adult life. It was just because of, you know, parental divorce and things and family and geography and, you know, and so... It's great to be reunited with it. But, you know, the thing of it is, I would hear this album, you know, and I would attempt to sit down at the piano and I would attempt, you know, well, what, what the heck was that? And I would be like... Like they would play, I would hear, again, I'm, I'm nine years old, so. That's actually what it is, I mean. Well, I wasn't able to do that, wasn't able. So I actually literally wasn't hearing what I was hearing. Wasn't able to reproduce it on the piano. To make matters worse, um, I actually met gifted, other gifted musicians my age um, when I would go to these camps about a few years later, 80, 81, I would meet kids. I want to call them cats, but because this is what we call, you know, cats that had absolute or perfect pitch. Get this, my strict Italian piano teacher, no jazz, no pop, classical. We're studying Clementi, Bach, you know, these, these, these little pieces, songs from childhood by Schumann. And I thought, you know, there's these scores, there's little sheet music scores, you know, we're going to look at a score. And I thought, I can't hear, I can't reproduce what I'm hearing because my ears aren't there. I love this music. That music I just played you, I thought was the most beautiful music I've ever heard in my life. And I thought that a piano doing something like that was the most beautiful thing a piano can do in this earthly life. And so I thought, wow, I can't, I don't know it yet, but you know what I do know? I know the sheet music. And so I figured, you know, what have I got to lose? I'm just going to follow my teacher. I'm just going to follow the Mendizi, and I'm going to go and she's going to take her ruler and put her, the ruler on my hand, you know, and all this kind of finger position and all this kind of stuff, you know, this kind of, you know, this kind of very, you know, and I figured, you know, I'm learning these pieces and, you know, I'm doing fairly well with them. I'm, I'm learning to interpret music. 
but it's all based on the score. And so I lived a dual life. I lived a life where I was being very dutiful and learning this very, I should say, very wonderful classical music. I, you know, I did not love it as much as the other stuff I played earlier, um, but I, I certainly liked it and I certainly um, respected it. And I figured it was something I could do. You know, that's the thing in life when you figure you could do something, you know, um, you should pursue what you can do, you know, and then maybe if you work on the things that you can't do, maybe one day you can do them. I kind of put it, put it that way. Well, but anyway, um, I'm learning these pieces. I'm also starting to enter these little contests in Tampa and these little, God, there's so many. They give you these little, these little strange. Here's Mr. Beethoven. This is from the seventies. They give you these little, the certificate that you learn this, um, learn this Beethoven thing, you know? So I don't know, but um, so I'm living, I'm listening to this music at home. And so I'm, I'm, then I'm studying the sheet music, studying the scores. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? I don't know. Always in the back of my mind, I'm like, I want to learn how to play this improvised music. And I want to learn how to play it um, at least to a degree of competence, sort of like what I was listening to. I never discussed it with anybody really then. I didn't really talk about it, but I did listen to it. I did go to these concerts. One day I said, Violeta Mendiza, you know, you're always giving me these operas. She was an opera buff and she would say, Mitch, you need to learn Tosca. You need to learn Aida. And so she would send me home with these huge box records and I would put them on my, uh, the back of my bicycle, go home and learn about Italian opera. And these, is, that's a whole other, I mean, that's a whole, I was actually quite busy and I was a fairly atypical kid. If I'm going home on a bicycle for my piano lesson to listen to opera, because I need to learn about Rigoletto and, you know, and Aida and things, and, 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 she, and she, would, um, she would demonstrate the, uh, oh, and her cousin used to cook spaghetti um, after lessons. And, and, and it was just, it's just a whole, it's just, you know, you had to be there, right? So, um, but Violeta Mendisi said, you know, Mitch, you know, your pitch is okay, but you don't have perfect pitch or absolute pitch. I have perfect pitch. I didn't know what that was actually. And so perfect pitch is the thing I was talking about earlier of the kids that the really, um, the jazz players that were ahead of everybody else were the kids who could hear something and play it. I mean, Keith Jarrett is that way. He can hear something and play it. There was a, uh, I watched a wonderful um, video of a hip hop um, producer and he was talking to Bob James and, 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 and Bob James said, uh, um, Bob James, you and I have something in common. We both have perfect pitch. And I thought, well, that's, um, that's interesting. Now, I'm sort of thinking, I'm thinking out loud now, this is interesting. So I said, you know, we started to have like a um, cultural exchange, like the Soviet Union in the United States. In the old days, the Cold War, before this world, the Soviet Union and the US would, would trade ballet companies and, and music and we would send them Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, we would send them Herbie Hancock and Chikoria and they would send the Bolshoi Ballet. Cultural exchange, that's right. And I said, Miss Mandizi, can I do a cultural exchange? I want to bring something in. It's called Sarah Vaughn and Oscar Peterson. Do you know who these people are? She didn't really know much about them. So I brought it. <laughs> I brought it this, man. 
This is what I was listening to. This is what I was listening to. Uh, where are we? Yeah. Uh oh. What happened here? This song. She would keep these records as long as I would keep her records. But we, I think we eventually returned everything, I think, to each other. Um, when I put this song on, Valletta Mendeza says, scoot over. She starts doing this. Gets to the solo, she starts playing Oscar Peterson's lines. Classical, 60-year-old classical Italian. <laughs> From her ears, what she's singing, she's never heard it before. And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there. Mandizi, how do you know what he's doing? She's oh, that's just um, this chord change and this chord change, and almost like almost like an accomplished um, jazz performer because of her ears. She just could directly one of those people at perfect pitch. Now she didn't swing very well. Her feeling wasn't great. You know, I was a little little stiff. You know. <laughs> Kind of, um, I don't know the way the way classical cats play that kind of music is sometimes very downbeat, heavy, and kind of very kind of a little bit stiff. But she knew all those lines, and I asked her, you know, what's going on there harmonically? What? And, and of course, she'd studied theory and, and musicology and all this stuff, so she would she would start talking about. Well, I don't really know. I just sort of hear it. She was a choir director, and so that was a very intimate experience of the power of perfect pitch. Now, perfect pitch might be a curse. I have no idea. Like, I don't know. Here's the thing. I had this long 20 year journey, 10, 20, age 30, different music schools going to conservatory of music, New England, solfeggio class. Solfege is a thing where you like you have to read pitches and sing these uh, domain, you know, these uh, these pitches, and it's like a kind of an ear training thing. And that was a hard class for me. But you know what I did? I said I'm going to master this ear thing. Um, Larry Scripp is a teacher, great teacher. He said you need to find any music you want, and you need to transcribe that music, and we're going to solfege it. And so I chose Witten Kelly's solo 
from Miles Davis, kind of blue, Freddie Freeloader. I said, let's soft edge that. And I got the whole class to go. That, 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 um, Freddie Freeloader, you know. So it's funny to have this whole class and you know everybody doing I can't sing, I didn't sing it. And I got an A on that. It was like it really learning that solo. Very simple. And you write it down, you learn the solo. Simple solo, not it's not as complex as some of the earlier stuff I was I was listening to. Really gave my ears. I guess I might even say my ears are quantum leap forward. And I thought, well, I understand Whitten Kelly. At that time, I was um, starting to play with a jazz group in Boston. And we were doing gigs. And I was like uh, 18, 19 around town, playing, playing night after night. And also, you know, playing, you know, some charts, complex things. And I'm actually developing my sound as a musician. So I'm actually finally doing what I wanted to do, this kind of music. And I'm getting better at it. Um, because when I was that little kid, not knowing what things are, I thought, well, I thought baby steps. So if it's a blues like that, or if it's this, um, I got the roll on the string. Uh, we're in A flat. Got to go somewhere. Not gonna. This is gonna stay on F flat. You can go if you wanted to. Um, but starting to get ideas this would have been 1987 88 in 89 i do in 89 this guy okay here's the thing i had heard him as a little kid when he came to tampa In fact, I have the album here. Here he is. Yeah, this is him. And see, he had, had him sign my record. So that would have been, you know, in the 70s. And, and, and here it is. I'm in, in, you're in the Conservatory of Music in 1987. And Raf DeLugoff says, you know, we need to get a new piano teacher. He had connections. He's like, he actually was telling the school what piano teacher to get. Let's get Stanley Cowan here. In all arts, it's great to have a mentor. It's great to have somebody. It's like an apprenticeship thing. And that person becomes your sort of your, your, your master or your, um, your, your teacher uh, of a sorts. And I, I'm to this day, I'm still learning things from him. 
And actually, this is what's really interesting. He got me really interested in the piano as an orchestra and the piano as a complete instrument. And I was preparing for my senior recital and he got me excited about the piano as a solo instrument. At the time I was playing with groups. I was playing with drummers and basses, horns and trombones and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, what about, this is what Stanley Cowell told me the first day of lesson. He said, if you could play any piece of music, song, complete solo piano, he said, first, then you could learn everything about that song. And then after that, he said, then you can do things with that song and change it. You can make it yours. And then you could, um, you know, create your own music. He says, but it all starts from this. And it starts from... If we're in A flat. stride you know and he here's the thing <laughs> stanley cowell studied with art tatum art tatum was a neighbor of his in toledo ohio that's where it comes from and now he was teaching me and so with him i worked on really really very complex music very simple music we did um what did i do with him i did um um when lights are low, but I also worked on the Gershwin Concerto in half, and that was my recital piece. I did my whole version of it, all movements, solo piano. And I really worked on this concept. And so if we fast forward to 2013, I developed my hard listening concept. And my hard listening concept was all solo piano based, except I thought, you know, I'm gonna use things from popular music. And I'm going to have the popular music figures, stock figures, foot, stock footage is what they would say in cinema. Almost cliches. I would have that be the raw material for the entire music. And it was an experiment, I thought. And then I'm going to put it in a kind of a, a kaleidoscope, like a collage mosaic, a modular mosaic. And that's why I got the idea. That's when I wrote Feminist Singer Songwriter without words. And I wrote it for my first hard listening album. I'm going to play a little bit of it. Um, and it was later used in the movie Support the Girls for Andrew Bajowski. He contacted me, says your song has to be in the credit sequence of my, in my movie. And, you know, that was very different because I was listening. So I did a lot of research for that piece. And it's like an 11 minute piece. Um, and I, you know, stopped listening to jazz for about a month or so, which is really hard, man. It's hard for me to stop listening to Cedar Walton, you know. And I bought this book. And I read this book. And I said, you know, I'm really into the 70s. I'm going to write this piece, and I'm going to just do nothing but listen to Carol Kane, Laura Nero, Joni Mitchell, Carol Bear, Sager, Carly Simon. I'm just going to listen to that. Now, here's what's really interesting. Wouldn't you know it? The first girl I was ever intimate with in Boston was a Suzanne Vega fanatic. And we would get together on dates and things, and it would always be my name is Luca in the background. I think this would have been 1980, 
seven. And so I really liked the Suzanne Vega. I never followed up on it, never influenced anything I wrote. I never, you know, I, I really liked that album. I liked those songs um, until 2013 when I thought I got to get back and listen to this music. And so my idea was to do like a Schumann song without words, you know, or Schubert for piano, like in concert piano. I said, what would it be like if I did a nine minute concert piece using this women's music, this kind of um, folk kind of thing as the language, but then get into Charles Ives and things like that about it, or even Bill Evans. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. So I had this, this, um, all music is language and there's different languages. So this, this, uh, I got the roll on the strings, this is a certain kind of language. It's one, you know, one, that's a language. If I do this, that's a language all of its own with its own emotions and colors and, and uh, meanings and things, right? This is a language. You know, over the years, I've been trying to learn different languages and get better. But I was kind of interested in this this long, long title piece, Feminist Senior Songwriter, Senior Songwriter, with this kind of language. I thought, well, I'm going to do this. not playing that piece I'm, I'm altering slightly because i'm trying to i'm trying to play express the language rather than the piece if that makes any sense at all and so i got this idea you know um piece piece bill evans that two chord thing, but using Carol Kane and their language.
So. tonality guy i like tonality but when i venture away or when i get more chromatic i get more dissonant it's for good reason and it, like like a piece like this you can really it's kind of a kind of interesting um, interesting coloristic thing and so all this stuff i've been doing that piece um even piece i'm writing now like i've got a I'll tell you what, I play the first few uh, measures of this string quintet or piano quintet. So maybe it might inspire somebody out there who want to do it, violinists. But I'm becoming more and more interested now with really, really letting the sound and the harmony shine through. Elongation, more and more a very a fidelity to the sound, fidelity to the moment. I'm very interested in that. And kind of uh, my own kind of minimalism. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, um, I respect, you know, look, I, I used to go see Philip Glass play in the eighties. I used to watch him in Bowling Green, Ohio. I watched his band and just, you know, I would watch those cats and go, wow. But you know, my things, you know, I'm interested in the idea of repetition. I'm getting more into that, you know, and so, Ah, very important. Forgot something. You know, when I do one of these things, I'm always going to forget something. I'm always going to say, oh, what about this with this? The Copeland Clarinet Concerto. Too low. was very very interested in that same thing he was really interested in um 
kind of uh, devotion to that moment and not a lot of, not a lot of um, filler editing, cutting things out and getting to the, getting to the essence of, of a thing. And, you know, when you got harmony like that, I mean, but you know, he's working with that same, you know, talking about composing music because then you got these issues so if i if i start off a piece like that you got a couple questions all right how long am i going to do it go on like that am i going to interrupt it um i like i think music should have dramatic contrast i think everything in life that's artistic that's created aesthetic should have contrast in it you know and so i you know i'm not going to uh reveal today how i did that but you know i've got um even in this piece, I'm doing. I'm using because I'm interested in it's an experiment. So what would happen if you took um, I say take out the stuffing of the music and you just had just the bare bone harmony of something? What would that be interesting? And I'm also crazy here. I'm using. Um, That's Burt Backrack. I have that in here. I have um, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. I mean, not literally. I know it's not plagiarism, but it's. Um, and then I have, um, you know, 
the the the, the uh, second movement of this uh, um, is dedicated to Stanley Cow. There's so much I can say about about him as a teacher, and but, but I've already said enough, I'm sure. But um, it all kind of ties together to me. So this is the latest thing I'm done. But you know, this dramatic contrast thing. Like I've got something I'm working on right now. Um, That's uh, unrelated to these other things, but I'm always um, working on stuff. And so my ears, through all these decades, I was working on my ears because my ears were weak and my ears were slow. And, you know, they're better now than they were, you know, when I was that kid who couldn't pick out things on the piano. And that's just worked, you know, and it all really comes back, I think, to if you love something enough. You got to love what you're doing. You got like, I love all, everything I've been talking about. I love all this stuff. I can't, there's no, I mean, you know, it's a very, it's a very aesthetic uh, experience, you know, cause it's not really about, I'm not interested. Like when I went into music, I wasn't interested in the non-musical things it could do for me, like fame or riches or any of that. I just love the music. I just wanted to be able to contribute to this thing that was so, to me, so valuable. And that's it. And, and I think really, I mean, I think that's a better consideration than other considerations. You know, I mean, I, I guess you could, you know, um, <laughs> people on my podcast talk about a lot of reasons about why they do things and interest you listen to them. And they're all, of course, valid for those people, you know, and, and, and all that. But I think if you had a love for just... You'll be well on your way, on your way. If you have a love for um, that, you can love that. If you have a love for, I don't know. Um, I almost want to say the rest will follow. Um, it, it's not quite that simple, but but it's close to being that simple, I think. You know, and you know those all those um, people I was in awe of that can have this perfect pitch, like my teacher. You know, they're you know they have a different life experience. Well, first of all, they're not autistic. You know, that's another thing too. My autism is like I'm laying on the on my back listening to this music. You know, and um, 
it's a different way to relate to music, you know, and it's a different, you know, I was reading it as soon as I was conscious, you know, learn to read, just reading books. I got all these books. I'm reading film magazines, you know, but I'm just a little slow picking out a melody, you know. What time is it? How long have I been talking? It's almost six. That's an hour. Um, I don't, I don't know what else to um, what else to say. I think I'll go out with a little music and and then we'll we'll uh, leave something for part two because I'm going to get into into some other things. Have a good weekend, everybody.